Hey, this is your host, Brett Carlson here, and I want to start today's episode with a big thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for checking out this show if it's your first one. And if you've subscribed and downloading this every week, that is awesome. That's a huge help. Going forward, going to try to launch these on Tuesdays. That's kind of been uh, a schedule that works for me. And I think when sports do kick off and events like that that happen on the weekends, it'll give me an extra day to kind of get these done. Want to have a really big shout out, though, to the Patreon people, four or five people so far that have went over there and given their hard earned money to Zach and I so we can host this show. And they're also getting bonus content. So this week on the Patreon, we did a breakdown of how we approach a video interview, which might be useful for some students or those of you learning video. That's the kind of stuff you're going to find over there. And a big, big thank you to Tim Ludwig and Stephen Davis, who stepped up to the shout out level of Patreon supporter. Without further ado, please enjoy this very remote uh, interview with James Rizat. We spoke over Skype and James only had his laptop microphones. The audio on this one's a little below average, but that's okay. Content is awesome and I cleaned up what I could. So please enjoy. Thank you so much for all the support. Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. So today we have James Rajat. James Rajat is from the United States, but he currently resides in Madrid, Spain. He is a documentary photographer, magazine photographer, former college professor. That's how I met him. He, we kind of crossed paths at RIT. Uh, I was coming in as he was heading off to explore the world. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about this one because James is one of those people that I think a bunch of us from RIT look up to big time and uh, just get really excited about all the stuff he does. Yeah, I don't know. I'm real excited about this one. So uh, without further ado, James, how are you doing? Well, thanks, Brett. I'm, actually, I'm very excited, too, because I'm, I'm kind of lonely as hell right now. Yeah, I think uh, the whole planet is right now. And I know you didn't want to start with uh, talking too much about this, but I really ha- I want to get out of the way before we get into anything else. So it doesn't seem like we're ignoring everything else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I was in Madrid um, until yesterday, and t- today is March 21st. My family had gone to my wife's parents' house about a week before, but I was staying to keep doing assignments and try to keep working. Not sure what was going to happen with career-wise or anything, trying to get some money before I get out of town. I kind of get one, I, what seems to be like one of the last buses out of Madrid to join my family. My wife had the car. So I kind of grabbed a lot of gear, my computer, and I forgot my microphone, as I mentioned to you before. Left my office, turned off the power, and just and just left town. And now I'm here at my wife's parents' house, sort of in self-quarantine uh, for the foreseeable future, probably about a week or so, I would say. And I don't, I don't really have any uh, symptoms, very noticeable symptoms, but I have a strange feeling, a small fever. I'm not sure what's going on. But I haven't had any cough or sore throat or anything like that. Yeah, I'm in a very similar situation. So I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, so two weeks ago, we had a tornado come through. So I spent two days photographing tornado damage. And this was this was the week uh, I was supposed to move across town. So this is uh, the new place now. Uh, I was supposed to move. And instead, I'm here photographing these tornado damages. And then one of the people at the local newspaper, the Tennessean, he actually lost his roof in the tornado. So then I spent the next two days 
uh, not all of the next two days, but a good portion of the next two days helping him relocate to a storage unit so he could have all this stuff safe and everything. So we had we went from that into moving and then into coronavirus quarantine. So I'm trying to be a, a good little soldier and stay put and do what everyone's saying to do because I think it's the right thing to do. But it is killing me right now because every job canceled, everything's off the books. Yeah. And yeah. I feel I feel guilt about going to make pictures for the sake of hoping to benefit myself when I don't have an assignment so i've been been staying put i, I ran once which uh is a rare occurrence for me <laughs> but other than that been staying home just making some grocery runs as limited as uh, i can so yeah spain has been uh more locked down than the united states so what was i mean what was the city like before you left so i left madrid under advisory not to leave okay because madrid is sort of the place with the most cases in spain and not that they have closed the borders of the of the province yet, but that was that's what some people were thinking. So that was another reason I wanted to get back because I have a wife and a son that are here in Andalusia in the south of Spain. And I didn't want to be sort of physically separated, so I had to make a decision because I was doing some work, some assignments about the virus um, before I left with a couple more coming in, but I figured it was probably best not to do that anymore. And on that, that topic, maybe this is the last thing we should say about it. I, ethically speaking, for freelance photographers at this time, people are saying that you shouldn't accept any assignments that are not about the virus. That the only reason to leave the house to put yourself at risk would be to inform the public about what's happening and not go out and try to make money or not going out and trying to photograph something else because it's not really worth it. I haven't been talked to about any assignments that didn't involve the virus. No, I mean, not that there's going to be any, but... Um, but no, I agree. And I think that's something I kind of posted on my Instagram story the other day that I'm struggling with this back and forth of like, when the tornado happened, I literally ran out the door at one in the morning because that's what we do. And so mm. I did that and it, it was great. I went and told stories and that's my job and that's what we do. And then with this, it's like the opposite reaction. Like, oh, do I go try to make a picture of Broadway? Do I go try to find testing? And it's like, if I don't have someone paying me to do it, and it's not to say selfishly about the money, but it's about the fact that I, I'm not adding to that situation in a beneficial way. Like I'm not giving them anything positive other than, oh, look, I went and made a picture. And I think that's something that normally, especially with young photographers, we'd normally tell them like, hey, yeah, go out, you know, cover that tornado, cover that thing, like do get out of their way. Don't be a hindrance. But like, you know, that's what we do. And on this one, it's like I'm almost telling people, no, stay home. Don't do it. You don't need to be there. Like your presence is literally adding to the problem, possibly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're trying to look for a positive of the situation. I think that it's a good time if, to reset yourself. I mean, if you oh, are yeah. a photojournalist and you want to be an, an interiors photographer, for example, it's a good time to just start thinking about your past work and thinking about your future work and, th and saying, okay, from now on, I'm going to do something different or, or to reaffirm what you already do. Say, this is where I am now and I'm going to stay with it in the future. Because it's going to be a couple months of not doing anything, in which time you can look at your own work, you can go back, reorganize your archives. And for me, I have years and years of archives starting with Nikon, well, starting before Nikon D1. And I know yeah. you like talking about like technology and things. So do I. And, but I've been through all technology in my relatively short career. Yeah. I started, started using film and went through every crappy digital camera <laughs> possible <laughs> yeah. until now. And, yeah. uh, but I mean, it's, it, it's nice to go back and look at all of that work. I'm sure you and I, we really have time to go back and actually pull files through, through bridge or whatever, whatever, you, whatever works yeah, for you never. to look at files. Yeah. And it's, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's can be. It can be sad. It can be. You can look at pictures of, of old friends. Can be thrown in there that you've completely forgot about. And it's, for me, it's 
to have like a couple of days to do this is actually a rare opportunity and it's something valuable too. Yeah, same. And that's what that's been kind of the saving grace. Um, obviously, to be a little meta, the podcast is obviously getting a little more attention right now because I'm not busy with assignments. But uh, things like this have been kind of uh, been able to go to the front burner. I resorted like four or five hard drives this week and I was just like transferring and dumping and moving things around. So all those things are really great ways to stay productive. I was on a Zoom call with people yesterday. And I told them, uh, the younger people, I said, if you ever wanted to network with photographers, I said, there's no better time than right now. I said, mm-hmm. all of us are not working, like 90% Everyone. of the industry. So yeah. right now is the time to send that email and say, hey, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, you know, maybe you have some time to look at my work. I said, because I told them, I'm like, I'm on this Zoom call with people I don't know, because what else was I going to do with my afternoon? This is a good way to help someone learn. And so that was well received. But anyways, let's back it up, get off this topic. Not that it's a bad one. Let's start back. How did how did this all start for you? When I met you, you were a professor at IT and we just barely crossed paths. I think you were I think you were in your last quarter or something there and I was starting and I know you had a friend of mine or two in your classes. But like where did this all start for you? I met you just briefly cuz I was friends with um with Mike. He was in my yeah. last very last course. It was in the summer a summer course before I, that course was in July and I went to Spain in August and that was 2010. So Okay. So I've been here for 10 years, basically. And before um, this, though, you're originally from Pennsylvania, though. Yeah, so I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and I'm a Penn State fan through thick and, thick and thin. We are. Uh, and uh, I know you shoot a lot of those games. And that's basically where I started was at Penn State shooting those games when I was 19, 20, talking about 2000 here. And I was on the Penn State Daily Collegian, which I loved. And we were shooting film. Uh, going to Michigan, hanging out with the Michigan photographers and scanning there and sending stuff back. So I really started as a sports photographer with a daily newspaper. I did not know that. I actually didn't know you went to Penn State. I just thought you were from Pennsylvania and we're all fans of Penn State. No, no, no. Well, my dad taught there. So I went there for oh. a good a good bargain. And oh, so yeah. I took advantage of it because I had great sports. I, I was really an athletic younger person. Not anymore, obviously. Um <laughs> But that's where I started, sports photography. And I think baseball cards really came, were a big part of sort of collecting, looking at photographs, like organizing things in sort of kind of like little portfolios. And I think it's baseball cards that kind of had my love for photography at first. And then I wanted to become a daily paper photojournalist. So I started getting internships and I started at the Patriot News in Harrisburg. Okay. Yeah. In 2001, maybe. And then I went to Florence, South Carolina to be at the Florence Morning News. And then I did a year at the Newport Daily News in Newport, Rhode Island. And a year-long internship was too long. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a long one. Uh, it was nice. It was a really small paper. And we had I had my two Nikon D1s with the 1735 and the 80-200 kit donkey bag. I'm talking like this kind of vintage vintage stuff, but <laughs> those are my memories of that time. I think um, if you have a 16 to 35 and a 7200, you could cover the whole planet. Like that was yeah, how I started that, my career. Those two lenses and I think I could shoot any assignment. It would just look corny on the 16 to 35, but you could do it. Yeah, I mean I, I would never go back to that, but that was just like what everyone did I think at that at that time. But then that during that year I became a little bit disillusioned with kind of daily paper type photography because it was starting to repeat itself a little bit and starting to be like events sponsored by the paper was what I was shooting. Yeah. And it was staring down the barrel of the end of small newspapers too. And even in 2000 and 2002 or 2003, that was sort of already becoming obvious. 
Although that, although Newport Daily News is still is still printing, I think they have one photographer now. During that year, I had some spare time, and I was looking at graduate schools and didn't have much money. But I saw a graduate school in Rochester, not RIT, but a Visual Studies Workshop. Oh yeah, which I went to visit. It was at the same time disappointing and kind of uplifting because it was not a tech school at all. So it was sort of the opposite of RIT. I think there were maybe ten computers there, or they were like the IMAX that had the dome and the yeah, the little bubble, but like they look like a sunflower or something. Yeah, yeah. Pedestal or, or whatever. Like, or like a BB-8 with a screen attached to it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But the, they were old by then. But there was sort of like a cooperative atmosphere and it was, it was part of the State University of New York. So it was accredited as a Master of Fine Arts. And I was like, okay, I'll, this this seems okay. And it didn't require, not the LSAT, but like the graduate oh, like school entrance. GREs or GRE, whatever. Yeah, GRE, yeah, GRE. was already past the deadline for that. So I, so I decided to go to this graduate school for an MFA. It was great because there was really small and there was a good, good professors. Chris Burnett, who sort of was a very academic professor, was there. So we, okay. we spent most of the time doing readings and I met some very interesting people, completely opposite of photojournalists, sort of just sort of like installation artists, printmakers, people that m- dealt with photo books. And this is back in 2005, before photo books were really super popular. But at this place, really focused on, on the Visual Studies Workshop, fo- focused on photo, photo books way back then and handmade books and analog printing and things like that. And just sort of people that were there to make pictures and make art, but not at all to to make news pictures or to make documentary style pictures because it was just different. I was still interested in that kind of thing. So it it helped inform, inform me in a different way. I also looked at graduate schools and I also had missed the GRE deadline. So I was, uh, I, I also ruled out some schools. I actually didn't end up going, or at least not yet. So I'm still uh, in the age range where I think that's still a thing that could be on the horizon. You started at, I think this is really interesting. I think more people have an experience similar to yours. Than I think most younger people or lay people would have give credit that like someone who was really into sports ends up doing this kind of high end clean whether it be reportage or editorial or whatever you want to call it work was it just from the visual studies workshop or like how did you start to push into that transition of style and way of shooting and working uh well that came from rit i think because i started teaching at rit after i graduated from graduate school because i had met dan larkin and i had met other professors at rit just being in town and going to openings and seeing art and things like that. And I had been working in medium format then and shooting very symmetrical interiors and landscapes for my graduate thesis. And I shot some portraits of people looking at their computers also for my graduate thesis. I think you can find that on the internet somewhere, somewhere a long time ago. But okay. um, that's when I started teaching at RIT and I had to start teaching studio photography, start teaching lighting, you know, photo 101 kind of stuff. So I had to go and learn it. And the good thing about RIT is you can walk in and check out any gear that you want and professors can keep it as long as they want to. Um, and I was an adjunct professor at that time. So I just started checking all these different cameras, field cameras, medium format, digital cameras, Nikon, like newest Nikon. It was like at that point, it's probably D3 or something like that. Using those for actual assignments too. So I was starting to get New York Times assignments at the same time. So the New York Times would call and the first, my first ever New York Times assignment was while I was still in graduate school because I still had that journalism connection. People were saying I was keeping that contact. And I had gone to the Eddie Adams workshop just before that too. So I had a little bit of connection. It was just, it was just dwindling away, but I was able to keep that New York times connection, which helped me a lot later. And my first New York times assignment, New York times assignment I shot with an RB six, seven medium format camera. Oh wow. It was, uh, it was like two nuns 
that were also scientists. So it kind of worked out really perfectly. I shot like a very symmetrical portrait of these two nuns sitting side by side in like a like a grandma's living room. And, it, and they loved it. So I, I, I started working in New York Times a lot when I was just starting teaching it at RIT. Every assignment I got, I would go and take stuff out of the RIT cage and go shoot it. And I mean, that was probably once once or twice a week, maybe a little bit less than that. But once a month, at least, I was shooting a New York Times assignment and using RIT equipment. Yeah. And my own computer, but RIT, RIT cameras. <laughs> um, but they said it was okay. I mean, that was, they hired me full time later uh, for a year. Um, that's when I met you guys and I met, you know, Mo and Rob and everyone else that I know from RIT. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I shot for the New York Times when I was at RIT too, but I used my own gear. They, were really, they weren't as open with us. They were like, you can't use this to make money, you little sons of bitches. <laughs> and they, they, they were pretty strict with telling us we couldn't do that. So yeah. um, awesome. So you're making this transitionary period. You're now teaching at RIT, and then you're there a year. I mean, was this was this part of the plan to teach, or was this kind of like a fell into it and then was happy to push on to the next thing? I was there for about three years, actually, because two years I was an adjunct professor. And my last year, I applied for a tenure-track position. This is the same year they hired Greg Halpern. And I didn't get tenure-track, but they gave me a three-year contract. Um, so I stayed the first year. And sort of in that time, I had met romantic interest with my, my wife, who is my wife now, and she is from Spain. So I met her, we moved in together. So sort of my exterior life forced me to, not forced me, I chose to move to Spain after the first year of teaching full-time at RIT. That was a quick transition. Um, so then you do what I think photojournalists of the old used to do and you move to Europe. I'm being funny, by the way, this is sarcasm. But anyway, so you move and you're living this dream life now, living in Spain, working. I know from moving now and in the past, it's not a quick transition. You are now in a new market where you likely know not many people. Like what what was that like and what kind of uh, strategies did you employ to uh, make that transition smoother to find work? Just sort of like as, as now is sort of a reset time, I treated that as 10 years ago as a, as a reset time. So I took six months off from doing it, doing photography, basically. I did a couple of assignments here and there, but I took Spanish classes, learned Spanish well enough to go start showing my book around. And I showed my portfolio. I invested in a, a bound portfolio and went and showed it around to major publications to um, good response, mostly, sometimes not. I went to an ad agency, for example, and they, they looked through it in about 10 seconds, seriously. Yeah. But then I went to El País, which is the nation's newspaper, basically, sort of like New York Times of of Spain. It's a smaller country, but, and I went to the weekly magazine and they gave me an assignment just based on the first meeting. Oh, wow. And I'm still doing assignments for them 10 years later. It's a strange, it's a different situation for me because I've worked for the same magazine uh, as a freelance photographer for 10 years, nonstop, basically. So they give me two, three assignments a month. And sometimes they're long assignments too. Sometimes they're portraits, right? Maybe two pages, but sometimes they're 12 page reportages. Wow. And a lot of them are travel assignments too. So lots of, lots of traveling involved with that kind of thing. And it was through that important sort of loyal client and the photo editors, like my Spanish mom now, basically, I met other people, was able to pick up corporate clients, was able to work for the in-flight for Iberia Airlines, which is a, which, well, which used to be a big, a big client of mine. I said that used to be a few weeks ago it was, now it's not. And it was kind of through working a lot in the beginning Based on one client, I picked up all these other clients. I learned Spanish that way too. If I were, I would go photograph in a prison, I would learn prison vocabulary. I would go photograph in a hospital, learn hospital vocabulary. I would go three days with a reporter and I'd have to speak Spanish with that person. 
So it was mm-hmm. full immersion right away. And it was it was and it was the New York Times work that got me the first portfolio meeting and first jobs. You were a little ways in your career when you started doing those New York Times assignments, but some of them were probably not the most riveting assignments. Like a picture of two nuns in ways is awesome, but I mean, I could see people basically seeing these. I did assignments in upstate New York. I guess the the shorter version of this is you're not getting the superstar assignments. Like they're they're kind of featurey, they're kind of whatever assignments. How did you approach those and like put effort into them knowing then and now knowing that you could get new work from them? I guess the point I'm trying to make is I'm sure you put a lot into those minor assignments, which then paid tenfold in the long run. It came from working at a daily paper and really having not only non-glamorous assignments, but actually almost embarrassingly <laughs> Small scale assignments like feature hunting. Do you know about feature hunting? Oh, yeah. No, that was my whole entire internship in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Every day, go find a picture. See you in eight hours. Thanks. Right. Get in the car and whatever. Uh, smoke cigarettes <laughs> and listen to <laughs> listen to like an old tape and look for a picture. That was my life. Oh, anyway, it was sort of that like ability to try to find some kind of a, a beautiful moment within any situation that I still have. I mean, I still have that outlook and it keeps you really sane sometimes too it's like i had to go photograph an archive recently it was just basically an old library and it was nothing exciting was going to happen no one was even there but i you know i really tried to make it look as beautiful as possible or as interesting as possible just based on having that instinct telling the truth but looking for a way to create something that i would hang on my wall in any situation i i have that thought a lot i was like would i hang this on my wall about my own photography when I'm editing my own work. And that is an important criteria for me. If I can look at it, if I want it to be around this image, then I think it's a good image. It doesn't necessarily have to have, you know, a certain kind of contrast or a sort of a decisive moment or anything like that. But it, this is an image that I can be around that I'm happy with it. To answer your question more specifically, I guess I also needed money too. So I, t- I took everything. And yeah. that in those days, I think they paid $200 a day. Yeah, and my rent was like, my rent was yeah. 180 a month. So I was just, you know, living with five other people or whatever. I was taking everything. That's yeah. always, I rarely turn anything anything down. I think the last thing I turned down, and this goes against advice of a lot of people, but I'm a, a photographer that I don't really have a trust founder or any kind of backup cash anywhere. So I take everything, basically. The last thing I turned down was uh, a corporate photography gig. This was probably three or four years ago. And they said they were going to have a corporate a conference at a hotel, and the employees were going to dress up in costumes, and they wanted to photograph them against a white backdrop. And I said, no, sorry, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, pretty much everything else I take. I'm in a very similar situation. I will take whatever, and I will kind of make it work one way or another i I mean it has to be laughable for me to blink at it which they rarely are and i mean honestly something like that though that'd be pretty bad the costumed uh hotel workers corporate things i always think twice at a corporate gig i mean if the money's okay i'll probably do it but if it's if it seems terrible i I won't do it yeah no i yeah (laughs) yeah i mean there's yeah there's laughable things i guess we'll get hit up with that um get thrown under the rug and passed by so this life in madrid um what does it look like now to you like what are you focusing on what are you uh striving for so i'll be 40 in august entering a certain stage of my career between 40 and 50 which seems pretty old for a for an editorial photographer i guess i like to think that i have kind of a young spirit i try to to be in shape to do whatever i have to do and i don't plan on changing my career anytime soon dramatically um i also have a child to a family. So I can't really leave for months at a time. One thing I've done recently is I've invested in not a studio space, but an office space, a nice office space in the center of Madrid. That's sort of like my headquarters, right? 
And I even yeah. rent part of it to a different photographer and work together there. I'm trying to establish myself in the sense of being sort of based in Madrid, but being in a stage of my career where I've, I've already been somewhat successful, but I'm still working, right? Yeah. In terms of changing the way the images, images I want to make, I would like to make images that were perhaps a bit more acceptable for lifestyle and advertising um, because it would be perhaps less travel and perhaps higher fees for each, uh, for each shoot. And I have an advertising agent, a new advertising agent locally here in Madrid. So working portfolios and that kind of thing. Also looking at uh, sort of high-end interiors, sort of if you think about architectural address, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm building portfolios for that kind of work too. But not really changing my, my style at all, right? But yeah. just sort of thinking to myself, how does sort of a mid-career photographer that's successful behave? Perhaps I'll start turn, turning more things down in the future. If, but it's sort of at a point now where it's, rates aren't really going up, you know? Yeah. I think for myself, I, had, I would, if I could continue how I'm going now, I'd be very happy for 15 more years. Obviously, adapting and changing and learning. I don't know. The future for, for, for the photographer, looking at your 50s is a strange thing. And yeah. I'm not one to plan ahead. Ten years ago, I was still in the States. So I don't know. I mean, whatever. <laughs> it should be okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I feel the same way. I have like a little bit of a back burner. Like, oh, you can't do this till you're 75. But, you know, it's a long time till I get there. So I'll worry about it later. How um, old are you? I, I'm 33. So okay. I'll be 34 in a month. This month. Next month. Whenever. Yeah. Next month. Yeah. Kind of mid-career, but I didn't graduate college till 26. So I kind of have a late yeah, yeah. jump. So I'm, I'm kind of like career-wise, late 20s, life-wise, mid-30s. So throws me in a weird boat sometimes. You talked about getting into advertising work, and that's something I have done and uh, something I know other editorial photographers and certainly people that have a similar style and approach as you do, more of an artistic editorial, or uh, that's kind of the way I at least envision it. I've also heard from some of them that you can do all the things you want in the editorial world, and that's amazing, and everyone can love it, and magazines will love it, and you go into an advertising meeting, and they're just like, neat. See you later. Like the, I know yeah. a guy that you'd be blown away that he, he told me that story, and I'm not going to say his name because... It, it was in private. But anyways, he told he told me that story and I was like, what? And then now I've been dealing with it, too. So how have you approached that? And what were some of the successes you found or challenges you found when making that transition? Uh, well, I can tell you, I can tell you that exact same story because it happened to me, too. So, I mean, obviously, the work I'm making is not intended for advertising. Right. And that's why yeah. people are going to say get out of here because they can see it. Right. They're smart. What really has to be done, which is difficult for everyone to do is, is investing in yourself, taking time off and creating a portfolio that's advertising. You have to do it yourself. You have to pay for productions to create a portfolio. There's not really an easy way to create an advertising portfolio. And the way I'm doing it is not, it's not the smart way to do it, really. Kind of skimming off editorial jobs and looking, oh, this could be used in an advertising uh, context, but it's not really the correct way to do it. And I haven't, I've, I've gotten only a few ad jobs that were because that the the focus of these jobs were that they were to look like photojournalism, right? Yeah. Those are the ad jobs that I get. There was a job I did for Uber last year. Uber Spain, not I mean, it's a smaller thing, I guess, but and it was sort of we want street street photography of these certain places. Sort of like just street photography, what you would see sort of Cartier Bresson style, decisive moment. Yeah. But you need also need you also need model releases for these things. So it was a very difficult ad shoot in it. It never actually came out, but they were looking for that specific type of photography. If I were to, I mean, you, you may ask this later, but if I were to go back and if I wanted to be an ad photographer coming up now, I don't know what I would do. I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't, it's not really a good answer. I mean, 
to get into the shooting advertisements is it's attractive because it pays more, but I, th- I don't think it's as in- as fun or interesting. I had a similar experience. I, I enjoy different. I enjoy them in different ways. I enjoy the the business side of it. I enjoy challenging myself. I enjoy the the teamwork aspect that's often involved that we don't get in the photojournalism world. But I I too have found that a lot of the work I get is kind of like reportage style advertising. So far, um, yeah. I think we all hope that that changes because the the checks are certainly uh, much more fair and much better than a lot of editorial clients. But yeah, I think I, I agree with you, and I I th- I think that. I'm glad to hear you say it too, because that was something I was thinking of doing is just basically setting, hitting a reset button and like building a portfolio for that. But as you know, right. that's not easy to do. There was someone that I, I was looking at before who actually did do this. You probably know who he is, Chris Christman. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know him or anything. I think he's out of Philly. But observing his work over, you know, this is probably five or six years ago, but observing how he changed his portfolio, it looks like he kind of went from editorial to advertising but based just on his own motivation of being a producer himself. You know, you, you're a photographer, but then t- to create an advertising portfolio, you have to kind of produce things yourself or pay a producer yeah. to produce them for you. Yeah. Um, the agency that I'm working with now has a, it's basically run by a former producer herself. And slowly she we're starting to work a little bit more together, but it's been about a year and I've only had about three or four proposals come my way. But I mean, it's, it's, under, it's understandable. There are some, there are obviously some photographers that have gone from editorial to advertising and becoming really famous in editorial is, is one way. If you're really good at editorial photography, like Pari Dukovic or something like that, you're going to get ad jobs too for your style. Yeah. And there's a certain style of editorial that then is more conducive. Like you were saying, if you're coming from a more traditional photojournalism, that's obviously not generally needed. Uh, and then, yeah, probably some of those types where they're doing these more style, more things then it kind of the bridge is a little shorter to cross. I think you used to be a photography professor. What were some of the things that you would focus on when teaching photographers or even other mid-career people you see now? What were some of what are some of the lessons you'd like to share that you you think people should maybe spend more time on or things you've done for yourself that you've spent time on that have bettered your own career? One thing that I, I always recommend and I try to do myself sometimes is talking is doing a little assignment about photographing strangers. So it's going out going downstairs, in my case, stopping people on the street and talking to them, photographing them. Sort of Humans of New York style. Although, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that website or anything or that blog, whatever it is. Uh, But it is a very useful activity to do, to spend a day outside photographing strangers. It's terrifying, but it's it's also super valuable. And always personal work is super important too. Any project, anything you have that you're working on that means something to you, is what's going to get you work eventually. If you go to a lot of portfolio meetings, and whether it be New York or, or London or Paris or whatever, the editors normally aren't that interested in hearing about your assignment work at all. They sort of want to hear about what you've been working on, right? If you are seriously working on something, you have a lot to say about it. And you, have some, you should have some interesting pictures about it too. I also am a big proponent of pitches. And I don't think that pitching was that huge in the U.S., I don't, I'm not quite sure about that, but I think, especially in the UK, people are pitching stories all the time. So a photographer is going to send a PDF of a story proposal to edit, an editor, um, and they may not get that exact job, but it's almost like a way of marketing too, right? So yeah. I, I have a few friends here in Madrid that are Brits living in Spain, and they're constantly pitching stories. I do every, every once in a while, I'll do a pitch, um, but I think it's an awesome way to get work. Oh, in the US, I guess like people were pitching sometimes, but I, maybe I was too young to, to realize it. 
But just recently, or just in the past five or six years, people are pitching a lot more and asking me for pitches also. Do you pitch anything or? Yeah, I do. I, I, I agree with that completely. I, I tell a lot of young people that like, I've found that when I tell editors about things I'm seeing, I probably won't get that thing like that's that's at least my experience so right. if i pitch a story and i find something i rarely get that one they're like ah neat and then they just ignore it exactly um, but <laughs> but then the next one they're like hey brett knows about i don't know whatever it is uh you know maybe he'd be a good fit for this project or something like that espn is someone i pitch to a lot and i'm trying to do features in like you know more magazine style stories for them but i'll, I'll pitch to them and i often find that i will kind of get maybe maybe a tepid response to the thing i'm pitching maybe it's interesting but it's not interesting enough kind of thing yeah and then uh but then but then they'll find another thing and they're like oh we really like how you were looking at that story and we think you'd be a good fit for this one but i've had that experience a lot aarp is another one i i do a lot of that with yeah i think they just find they they i don't know what it is but i think it's like they see that you're thinking they see that you're trying to come up with new ideas you're trying to uh find products for them to run and I, they just seem to latch onto that but you still get a lot of no's <laughs> or at least in my well, yeah i mean I, I think i mean i think no's are to be expected obviously i mean if, if someone cold calls you to buy insurance you're not going to say yes you start thinking about insurance you know what i mean yeah totally it's it's a, it's a sales approach but the fun thing about it is it's cre- it's a creative sales approach so i mean you can be just sitting around surfing the web internet. I'm not so old, or like reading a book or whatever. But and you can think of an interesting story and like put together a possible plan for that and just pitch it in a day. And it's valuable because it's a marketing tool, basically. And sometimes they'll, yeah. sometimes they'll accept it too. I mean, if you're pitching, it means you're working. Yeah, certainly. And I think I think like one thing I get asked a lot is like, well, how do I reach out to people? I get I get a lot of that from other people in the career and young people. And I always tell them like, you know, provide that person with value in your contact. Um, and right. I think pitches are a great way to do that because you're trying to solve a problem for them of what are they going to run next week or month or day or whatever. So anyways, we've kind of covered a lot of ground pretty quick. But I want to get into something that's kind of the root of this podcast. And I want to talk about what gets you fired up, whether that be a personal project you're working on now or whether that be like something you do for yourself. I really love when you talked about, you know, would I want to hang this picture on the wall? I think that's really insightful. And I think that's great. But following along that vibe, I want to talk about how are you going to get excited? What what drives you what lights that fire inside of you because i want people that listen to this to leave this podcast with like wow that's exciting and i want to go make work and there are a few i mean there are a few things a new client gets me very excited to try to impress this new client and these are these are less important things but i'll name a couple of them a different type of subject matter that i'm not used to an interesting place that someone that someone's going to send me gets me really excited too um and those are kind of things that you can kind of wait wait for or they happen sometimes but they're not really you can't really count on those kind of things. But what what really kind of gets me photographically, what makes me excited is having the right light at the right time. It also causes me a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah. And I do I do light a lot of my, even my documentary work, but just having like the exact quality of light that is helping the picture is so is very rewarding to me. And especially having sort of a potent light that gives you kind of like an F8, F5.6, like a nice light with nice shadow gets me very excited and not too bright not too dim a sweet spot even with digital camera or film camera doesn't matter what it is but it's when the moment that you want is happening and it's and it's nice light happening at the same time it, it, it's very rewarding to me and it has happened i've got it, i consider kind of getting lucky when you know you have to shoot a, you're shooting a cover story right and the subject is there and everything's working and 
goes from cloudy and changes to sunny all of a sudden. That's kind of the most rewarding thing I can think of. All right. There are some places in the world in some days where you expect the sun to come out, but like there's a mountain and the clouds just keep spiraling in front of the sun. And those are the most stressful days I can remember. <laughs> I mean, even the cloud, cloudy light's not bad, but I just, I, I got to have some shadow in there to kind of get, to get it, get it going for me. <laughs> yeah. I like when um, you get that like quarter silk of cloud where it's just like yeah, just yeah, that yeah. little thin just, layer and you get yeah. the direction where you don't get the hot spots. That's like, oh. <laughs> I yell yeah, at everyone to get in their position when that happens on ad shoots. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're doing it now. Ah. <laughs> the reward of like seeing the picture as I'm scanning it or as I'm looking at a contact sheet, even in, in Capture One or Lightroom or whatever, seeing the whole take for the first time and just like yeah. getting a cup of coffee and going through and making collections just was like really my my happy my happy time. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Oh no, it's so rewarding. That first edit, just kind of going back through, and it's a short term, short term memory kind of thing, and like going back through and looking. And I always create like a, a very broad first first edit, and I'll narrow it down two or three times after that based on moods. <laughs> and I'll, uh, but that that moment for me is just like joy. What are some personal projects or some things you are diving into or have maybe dove into in the past that have have really helped your career or helped you move along? When I was in graduate school, I did a series of pictures about a high school, East High School in Rochester, New York, that were, as I said before, sort of symmetrical interiors of classrooms, auditoriums, and playgrounds and things like that, which kind of got people, you know, when the internet, and when there was before Instagram, before Tumblr, but the people on the internet were sort of like passing that around, and I had some pictures in a show in New York and things like that, and I kind of used that to to base a lot of my style these days, sort of tripod-based symmetrical type pictures. Later, I did a series of pictures in a small town in Pennsylvania, sort of near my hometown. And I kind of went for a more method approach where I lived in that town for a month. It was a town called Frenchville, Pennsylvania. Using that method was also important in creating a certain type of picture that was sort of intimate or interesting or unusual because of the proximity I had to strangers or you know, somebody's house at night or pictures that weren't like a day job kind of thing. And that was an important project for me because it was my first kind of real attempt at doing a long-term documentary type project. Although it wasn't quite really focused on any kind of theme, it was more about the method, right? So the method, yeah. that method to me was super, was really important. And the style of picture being sort of subtle and intimate was, was very important to me. And, and since then, a lot of my personal work has been more assi- assignment-like right? To sort of build my assignment portfolio. So yeah. I did a, a, a small project done in basically in two days about a guy, a man in, in Southern Spain who was sort of gen- genetically altering canaries. And I did sort of a canary typo- typo- uh, typology of, of his different species that he was creating. I'm not sure if they've been important, but those, those are the pictures that I show. And those are the pictures that have gotten any kind of recognition have always been those, pers- those personal projects. And currently I'm working on a project about corruption in the government. It's producing pictures that are that are a little bit bland, but they have interesting stories behind them. And that's what I've been showing to in portfolio reviews. And people have been, so far, pretty interested in, in the outcome. It's one thing you've been talking about with all of these stories that I think some people will get hung up on in a different way. You've talked about earlier, like your assignment work's taking you places, you're traveling, you're doing these things, you know, and I know that's a mix. It's not every assignment, you're not traveling around the world. But you are certainly traveling for assignments and doing the things that I think a lot of people want to do. Mm-hmm. However, all of your personal projects you just talked about were close to you, uh, Rochester, New York, a town in Pennsylvania, 
another spot in Spain. Can you talk about the importance of having that proximity to where your personal project is and how that has helped you develop them further? Yeah, and I, I'm not sure where I heard this or I read this or whatever, but I know it's true. It's that the work that you make that's the most important is something that you're familiar with already, right? That you don't have to, to learn a whole new topic to create work. It's something that's part of you already because there's so many photographers and talking to anyone, you're the best photographer to tell stories about yourself, right? Or to tell stories about something that you are you were involved with, right? It's, I mean, it, it's, it's great to travel around the world and go take and photograph in other countries and try to tell stories there. I mean, it's challenging, but it's not quite appropriate, I don't think, to say, I'm going to go to to Russia and make an intimate story about somebody there because I, I have no idea what's going on there or I have no idea about people there. I can't talk to them very well. But I mean, if I do a story in central Pennsylvania, it's, it's what I know. It's where I it's where I grew up. And, you know, I played Little League in this in this same town. And, you know, I'm, I'm part of that community. So I think I'm the, the best photographer to tell that story. Maybe that's part of the reason where I want to kind of change my setting too, to to integrate myself into a different type of setting to be able to have the sort of credibility or or whatever to tell stories in a different place you know yeah and i think that's so important and i think i think that's something that a lot of people don't focus on especially early on in their career and i think with whatever discipline you pick i think a lot of people go try to like go hit the home run or if it comes to sports photography they want to go shoot the super bowl um or when it comes to editorial and stuff like this they, they want to go tell a story in some big famous wild place overseas and i personally took the approach of telling stories close because financially that's all I could do. <laughs> um, but also it was, it, it made it. So if I could make 20 trips to somewhere a few hours away, that was way I could get, I could dig in deeper than I could if I could make two trips to somewhere, you know, an airplane flight away or something like that. That was my exactly. approach. I think, and you're a great example of this is that editors are smart enough to understand that they see that the storytelling ability is there and they're going to give you the work that then has higher risk because they know you can do it when you care about it. So what what do you think is the next step for you? I know we talked a little bit about your future, but we'll dig in a little deeper here. You know, I, I mean, I know the next few weeks we're all kind of in limbo, but um, let's looking past that. Like, what what are you thinking is your next approach? What are your things you're focusing on? Or maybe it is something in the next few weeks that you're going to put together for when this is over. I don't like talk, talking about pictures I haven't made yet. Of course. Because I'm always doing it. <laughs> but <laughs> I have... Started working with, um, and this is sort of in, in attempts to create sort of a crossover portfolio, working with a group of uh, stuntmen to do both staged and documentary pictures about their sort of how they practice. I've only shot once and they went to Mexico and the virus happened. So this is my attempt at sort of a crossover portfolio to do sort of half studio and half location based portraiture and more like action shots movement pictures of mm -hmm. stuntmen so far i've done them in cars doing drifting but i you know i'm looking forward to falls fires and fights they talk about those kinds of things right and and produce them in a way so they do it one day on their stage and then i, I bring them to the studio and do it in the studio with them in the same way to create a, a portfolio to give to my advertising agent that has this kind of movement. It's a little bit of sort of, you know, it can be very edgy too. I photograph dance sometimes. I want to photograph it in the same way as I photograph dance, like really kind of layered lighting with lots of the faces in shadow, kind of away from the light kind of pictures and orchestrate it and sort of be a director for kind of the first time in that way. Um, and because it will be sort of studio-based or a very specific location-based, it will be not so much travel. I can 
pick up my son at five o'clock and I can arrange things a little easier. I enjoy travel assignments. I enjoy that kind of thing, but I, I do want to kind of want to settle down my traveling a little bit. The other thing I'm getting into is I'm doing a lot of work on photographing interiors, specifically yeah. like architectural interiors and, and that kind of thing. Just trying to get a really clean portfolio for that kind of stuff. In general, just adapt my portfolio to the, work, the kind of work that I want to do in five years, basically. Right. Which is yeah. kind of what I've always what I've always thought of. And it's not going to happen right away, obviously. And I don't want to switch all of a sudden either. You know, I, I like updating my site every three or four months, but not dramatically. You know, if I have a new project, I may not put all the pictures on there at the same time either. But if I go see an editor, I'll bring them work that's not on the website yet. So it's sort yeah. of like no one's seen it before. Or if I go to see, in this case, a producer or an advertising agency, it'll be it'll be this, this new kind of work that is a bit more polished and produced by myself. Okay, so shameless plug. James and I are talking about how to approach a client meeting or a portfolio review on the Patreon podcast. How did you, how did you get them too? Yeah, we're going to dig into that a little bit on the Patreon podcast if you want to help support all this work that is done to make this podcast possible. We are going to end with our uh, last three questions here. I'm trying to ask everybody the same three questions uh, so we can kind of get a database of how other everyone approaches the same uh, little questions. So number one is, what is something that you wish you learned earlier in your career or at the start of your career that you now know? I never took photography class until graduate school. And when I was there, that was more kind of theoretical. So I never really, I didn't really go through university le learning Photoshop, I mean, with any kind of teaching or any kind of digital, you know, uh, manipulation until until much, much later. You know, if I go back and look at my old work, it's, it's really not color corrected very well. Um, I never really learned color management until recently, until, you know, I was 33 or something. <laughs> like, yeah. It's it was it's it that's how it was because because I grew up in a time in a, during transition where I, I, I started I started working in a tr traditional time things were changing pretty fast I don't think it's been until until quite recently where people had you know computers monitors websites cameras have all kind of gotten on the same page and I I can yeah. remember in the early two thousands you would you would shoot something it would look right on your computer and it would look completely different on somebody else's computer i mean they'd be these crt massive crt screens you know so you could never really control the quality of your of your product unless you really knew what you were doing and i didn't so i wish i would i would have learned exactly how to control color especially color early on because i yeah. probably made a bad impression sometimes with bad color i'm sure i mean i'm sure i did <laughs> i feel like a lot of people you know a lot of mid-career or higher career people are like ah oh, well you know don't worry about the tech worry about the story and I, I i agree with that but i feel like there is a base level and there is things you have to get right and that is certainly sure i was grateful to have that rit education to get a yeah. lot of those tech things hammered in i, I mean before, before i move on I mean, it's there's a really fine line between professional professional work and amateur work and that yeah that comes to do with tone and color and file presentation and and the delivery of your of your work you know it can look really really shoddy if you don't do something exactly right you know it can be you can be dead in the water if you if something looks like really magenta and you and you turn it in i mean you'll never get hired again yeah and i think there's it's not as uh i mean there's a lot of little things that add up to make it pretty simple to get it right you know once you, it's basically it's a lot of it's pre-production it's a lot of you know, exactly. You, you do it. You do some stuff right on set or on location, and then you you know have a monitor that's set up properly and a couple other things, and you can pretty easily ensure without much worry that everything looks pretty accurate. You know, uh, everyone should buy a color calibrator 
and a color checker <laughs> um, right. or, a, a, you know, and, and you can you can basically with a few clicks get everything pretty prop, uh, pretty proper. But I, I actually see that a lot when I edit for Getty. I'll see a lot of people that just don't have the color right. And it's it's uh, it, sometimes it's bad enough that we fix it. Sometimes it's just kind of like, eh, you know, it just kind of looks a little there's too much volume to go and fix every single photograph. But yeah. It definitely gets noticed and when you see someone who has it right i mean they immediately the pictures immediately look better i mean and, and you know this is mostly sports that i look at but it makes a difference it makes a big difference another thing because this is an important question that i wish i had been more aware of when i was perhaps a little bit younger was about being more assertive in journalistic situations so i was always kind of passively accepting of what was happening right yeah um, this gets sort of gets into ethics but also has, has to do with access if someone says oh no you can't shoot that you, or you're not allowed in there. The old me would have said, okay, no problem, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But now I've learned that to get the access that you want, the person has to say no several times before they say yes. Or to get the picture that you want or the time that you want, especially. A lot of time portraits, like he only has five minutes or she only has four minutes and only, we only do one setup. But you, I never accept that first thing. You know, it's always like, I'll say, no, 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 we need this, no, 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 we need this much time. They'll say, no, no. It's always sort of an, a battle to get what you want, even in, in journalism, where yeah. it's, the ethics line gets you're close to the ethics line sometimes, but in controlling situations, right? But you have to be super, super uh, adamant about what you want in every situation. If the police say you can't go back there, you say, okay, I'll call my editor or let me check. You know, you 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 try to get where you want to go. You can't just say, okay, sure, no problem. Or, okay, okay, I'll try again tomorrow. You know, you have to be very adamant about what you want, I think. And I think you would agree with that too, Brett. Yeah, no, I, I totally do. And uh, it's funny that you brought up portraits because I feel like that's one of the stiffest battles is getting right. a good amount of time for a portrait in editorial or advertising situations. But no, I think you're right. And I struggle with the the ethical boundary that you kind of get into. But I do feel like, you know, you kind of have to argue your way into why this helps tells us, tell a story when it comes to editorial things. And it's like, no, I, I need to stay this extra amount of time or I need to get into that area because this is that's where things are happening um, or things are going on. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that sentiment. And I'm sure it's different geographically. I know that even across the United States, I have different experiences in different towns uh, and sometimes counterintuitive ways. Like sometimes in New York City, they understand the press is going to be there and they just don't care and they do their job. While a small town might be like, what's this person doing here? Yeah. I don't want them anywhere near here. I ran into that even as recently as two weeks ago on the tornadoes. I didn't expect it at all. I'm like showing volunteers helping to clean. And some guy came up and was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, telling the news. Like, So the second question, what is one piece of equipment or gear that maybe it could be a pretty standard thing or something people don't expect that you bring with you and you you wouldn't go without that i bring with me always yeah that's something that's just like it has to be there and then why would you bring it well this isn't my answer but i will say i always have a second camp backup camera yeah just just a peace of mind and i know that seems pretty kind of obvious but even though it breaks my back i always have a second camera with its lenses because so i shoot medium format but i also i always bring my canon with me just in case it falls in the water that's just because i'm a little I, because i something will, will probably go wrong every every time you go out so i always have at least one extra camera the first time you don't bring that medium that that canon is the time the medium format will fail exactly exactly well i'm definitely a tripod kind of guy i'll always bring a tripod even though it kills me just because i like to photograph in low light a lot i like that kind of subtle light i wish i had a better answer for this because i mean some people might say you know no, this is, I think almost no one will say a tripod. So dig in. I, I And I have, diff, I have a bunch of different tripods for every kind of situation. Well, tri tripod bases anyway. 
Um, the one I use the most is it's uh, I think it's called Menfrotto Beef Free. It's like green, okay. but it weighs nothing, and it's it's good. I mean, like it's it fits in the side of my backpack. Actually, the backpack is I'm a backpack guy too. I'm not a yeah. rolling I'm not a rolling guy. I can't roll. I can't roll. I'm a backpack guy always. <laughs> even I was a backpack guy. Even like ad shoots, I'm gonna roll with my backpack. <laughs> I was a backpack guy forever, and then I got a very heavy 400 millimeter, and uh, now the new one's really light. I should actually re. I should. I'm looking over at these gigantic rollers, and I should. I should reinvestigate backpacks because I definitely don't need the roller on a lot of things, and I'd, it'd be nice to have all my primes in a roll in a backpack. So I, when I do a- editorial shoots, I'm not rolling everywhere. But I mean, I think that with the tri- I mean, the, what the tripod does is it gives you. It's it's almost like it's almost like having lighting gear with you, right? It gives you sort of the confidence, like even if it's inside dark i can i can make it work just because i have this added tool like time doesn't exist because i have this tripod right even with portraits it it works it it can work really well i mean i like to bring lighting gear but i don't always want to or i don't always need it and but a tripod gives me just a little bit of peace of mind and i think that's what gear is it gives you not gives you opportunities but it gives you peace of mind that you can do what you want to do for me anyway because i know some people that shoot with one lens always other people that bring 20 lenses but it's all because in their mind they're thinking like this is what it takes, right? And it, it puts yeah. in a piece to think about, I'm prepared, right? You think, so I'm prepared for this. And it's, it's that piece of equipment that gives you, that just makes you feel comfortable. I think that's the most important thing about, about the equipment, right? Like I don't bring my laptop no. on shoots. I don't, you know, I don't really necessarily need, I don't even have a laptop really. This is my wife's laptop that we're using right now. I don't, you know, I don't need that many cards or as long as I have a tripod, I feel it's, everything's going to be okay. so like safety blanket like linus and peanuts awesome so the last question is uh similar to the first one but i think it's a a different enough that i I i've gotten some good answers we don't know the audience this podcast as we are recording this podcast before it goes live but what was one piece of knowledge lesson or uh tip or something you'd like to impart onto the listeners of this podcast can i do too yeah you can of course do too i have like a personal motto not necessarily about photography but there are more about uh a way of working for things right the first one was from my from my father who said do it until someone tells you not to which kind of makes me feel empowered to kind of not ask permission for things and that's just ba- that's just basic for everything for my whole life and the other other kind of personal, my kind of personal, this is my soapbox thing, is is that I only create photographs when I'm uncomfortable. I only create good photographs when I'm uncomfortable. And it has to do with composition and it has to do with the way I'm working, right? If if I'm standing there and I think I look cool, I'm taking a picture, it's not going to be a good picture. I think someone actually told this to me. But if I look like a, a weirdo and I'm sweating and hunched over and my knees are dirty and I, I'm wearing stupid clothes, I'm probably getting good pictures. If, you know, if I'm wearing a suit and I look, and I never do this, but if I look all cool and collected, I'm not making photographs. I'm not making good pictures at that point. But if the more uncomfortable, the more stressed, the better pictures are going, are going to be for me, you know, even though it won't look like that when they come out, it might look like I'm all together and everything's clean and everything is taken care of. I'm a mess almost all the time, almost all the time, right? And that, that's how it should be because it's the only way I trust myself to make a good picture is when I'm sitting cross-legged, doing things that an adult would never do. That's the only time I know that I'm getting good pictures when I have myself in these sort of embarrassing situations. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yeah, I, I like right. I've I've worn through the knees of so many pants because like my whole my whole career is on my knees and my hip and my butt. Like I'm always sitting and right, kneeling like, and I mean, cross-legged and 
all all it, it, it could be a portrait of a politician or a ceo i made the ceo of ebay get on the ground with me and someone was like how the hell did you get him to do that and i was like i don't know i just got on the ground i was like hey lights real good and then he did it and they were like how did you get him to do that I'm like, i don't know right. you're probably sweating and your hair is probably a mess and everything but you, that, that's that's when you make the good pictures it's when you don't if you forget about yourself and you you feel invisible is when you kind of make start making good pictures that's awesome that's, that's probably why I haven't, I haven't done well in the advertising world is because i don't care what I look like and I actually feel like I should look stupid when I'm photographing. <laughs> yeah, well, you need to have a six assistants that all have the fancy leather shoes on and right. so for some reason changing services. changing your catalogs on your six by seven camera even though you're shooting digital. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Swap it to the black and white back, please. Yeah. Uh awesome. So James, this has been a lot of fun. Uh this is an awesome episode. I'm really excited about this. How can people find you? How would uh editors, photographers, how how would you want them to find you on on the internet? Uh well the, when the world goes back to normal, I'll I'll be always be in Madrid, based in Madrid. Um my name is James Rajat, R-A-J-O-T-T-E, and you can find me that way. Although there is a uh Canadian member of Parliament with the same name who has been in my way for a number of years. Um, <laughs> I'll be probably second on Google for you. Uh, and Instagram at James Rashad. I, I managed to get that name. Oh, um, you're lucky. If you want to find me, you'll find me. <laughs> That's right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you are not already subscribed, please subscribe. Tell your friends about this podcast. It's the only way this grows and gets bigger. And I'm able to get people like James to actually spend time talking to me. If you want to check out James and I talking about the way you approach a portfolio review with a client or a client meeting, follow me on Patreon. A small amount of money will go a long way to help me and also help make this podcast uh, better than it is already. Uh, So thanks so much for listening. And James, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast please take a moment to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com slash reciprocity podcast to support the show. 